Welcome to the Data Bites podcast by Women in Data, where we give you your weekly bite-sized dose of career development advice, industry case studies, and career stories to help you excel in your data career. Today, I'm speaking with Jeremy Harris, co-founder of an AI safety company, Mercurus, and previous co-founder of Sharpest Minds. In this episode, we discuss how AI moved from narrow to general and the safety implications of this, from malicious use to accidents. Jeremy has advised senior political and policy leaders around the world on the long-term risks of AI and provided insightful recommendations on how all of us can shape the future of AI in a positive direction. Enjoy. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on the Data Bytes podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation and I'm excited to dive in today. Oh, well, Sadie, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited for this. Yeah, it's a pleasure because I just recently was able to talk to you on your podcast towards data science, and I was feeling a bit reluctant because I was like, oh, you asked me so many wonderful questions. I really want to do the same to you because I didn't get to ask you the questions back. So I appreciate you making this time because I'm excited to learn more about your story and some of the great work that you're doing in regards to helping AI become much safer and trustworthy. Um, And I think it'll be just a fantastic conversation. Same here. And and for what it's worth, I have the same worry, but in reverse with the answers. So uh, it was a really, really cool podcast. And I, I would just mention like anybody who's interested in like, Sadie's exploration of what she's working on, please do check that out because I, I don't know, I thought the conversation around like Web3 and data science, all the work you're doing there is so, so interesting. So anyway, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, I'd like to kind of level set for our listeners and just talk about the most recent work you've wrapped up, which is co-founding and leading Sharpest Minds. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit more about your founder's journey there and you know, why the decision to actually move on from it and start something new now happens today. Yeah, definitely. I think um, <laughs> the founder's journey is always a messy one, as as you know, of course. But uh, we started with a like an app that would recommend restaurants. Uh, this was me and my brother back in 2016. I was a, a fresh uh, PhD dropout and he had his PhD. We we're both physicists, which immediately creates a problem because there's this phenomenon that we only identified after the fact that we call cocky physicist syndrome. And this is like when you have a physicist who thinks that they understand how the world works at this like deep and fundamental level, and you keep convincing yourself that you can rederive like a better way to do everything, which ends up wasting a ton of your time. And so anyway, um, this led to a whole bunch of mistakes that I'll just gloss over by saying that our first attempt at this was a disaster. It turns out that making an app that recommends restaurants for uh, couples that are struggling to figure out where to eat is both not interesting and the level of technical sophistication of it in 2016 was um, well beyond what we could chew at our at our level of like startup capability. Um, but the cool thing about it was it got us into the startup world. And once we were there, we started to notice a lot of low-hanging fruit, um, especially on the kind of education side of things. So one of the things that we started to notice, a lot of our friends, because we were physicists, were going into data science. It's like a very common transition. There are basically no job prospects in physics. And so if you're a physicist, you're kind of like nervously tapping your feet all the way up till graduation. And then you're like, oh, shoot, now I've got to get a job. What is a good job? So machine learning, data science, analytics, that sort of becomes a good target. And um, as a result, we got to see the hiring process unfold. We got to see the education and upskilling process unfold for a whole bunch of our friends. 
And one of the things that became really apparent, even that early on, was that uh, the bootcamp rush, which was on like crazy, was kind of missing the mark in a pretty important way. So you had all these instructors who were sort of not super talented at the thing they were teaching, almost by definition, like if a bootcamp instructor is teaching software engineering, you kind of have to ask yourself why they're not at Google. Like there's like a, a selection process that goes on there. And um, so we wondered, you know, can we do better than this? Can we create a situation where you can somehow incentivize a professional data scientist, a professional data analyst who does work at Google to spend time, not at a class level, but one-on-one -on -one with people who are trying to break in the field. Uh, we also identified this kind of solution because a big part of the problem of breaking in is this like lack of intimacy, lack of intimate support, and the kind of answering the sorts of questions that a lot of people have that they're shy to ask in an open uh, environment, in an open context that are very specific to them. Things like, I come from background X, how do I get to place Y? Things like, I have even like relationship challenges that make it difficult for me to do this or that. You know, how do I manage that? Which um, from our previous conversation, I know kind of loops into uh, women in data quite a bit. So sort of an interesting overlap there. Um, in any case, so we ended up landing on this idea that we wanted teachers to feel invested in their students. And the best way to do that, we found, was actually through this idea of income share agreements. So basically, I'm a mentor and um, say, Saudi, you're a mentee. You want to break into data science. And the idea is I work with you for several months building out your resume, projects, all sorts of things, prepping for interviews. And it's all done for free in exchange for after you get hired, a percentage of your first year of salary. So the idea is this aligns our incentives one-on-one. -on -one. Um, it's a, a sort of way of getting me really excited about your prospects in a way that touches my personal bottom line in addition to my own excitement about just being helpful. And, uh, and that was the founding of Sharpest Minds. That's what took us through Y Combinator and a whole bunch of mistakes later. And now the company has uh, got, I don't know, like thousands of, uh, of mentors and mentees, and it's, it's been a, a really exciting journey. Wow, it's, it's incredible. I love how the pivot too that was made, right? Of, hey, starting with restaurants, but then really it sounded like narrowing into what was in your environment and a need and a problem, right? And I think that's where all great companies start is from solving a problem, right? And if you solve a billion people's problem, you're probably going to have a billion dollar company. And that's what it sounded like you did. You're like, hey, we're seeing this problem here where there's a lot of people transitioning into this and there's a key piece missing. And I think what you created is just so simple, um, but also just so direct in solving that core problem of helping people get into that career pathway through buy-in and mentorship and the right education. So kudos to you and your brother and what you've built there. I think it's really incredible. But now you've started to make another pivot, right? And, and this time it's not a pivot because Sharpest Minds is failing or any of that. It's very much succeeding and you've found someone to take it over, which is incredible. Um, but from what I've been reading, you got really into the risk of AI and what was potentially the impacts of some of the things that we were building. Can you talk a little bit more about your kind of aha moment into like, oh, this is a big deal and there may be some potential long-term risk to what we're doing here? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it. I mean, I, this all goes back actually to around the same time, 2015, we've been following the story of AI risk that uh, I'll get into in a minute, as far back as that. And so it was always on our radar in the background, sort of following 
you know, where are things going technologically? And at some point, we always knew that we wanted to do something about, again, the risk class I'm about to explore here. But um, this was, as you say, this was the pivot point. So uh, what happens in 2020 is you have OpenAI that comes out with GPT-3, which by now I think most listeners will be familiar with. GPT-3 is a glorified autocomplete AI system. Um, so you feed it a prompt, like a little sentence, and it will predict the next word that you might want to write in that sequence of words. And so you can imagine feeding it with prompts like, um, you know, Jack and Jill went up the blank, or for a more useful output, um, in order to compete with China, the United States should blank. And now you have GPT-3 basically writing public policy. Um, so the, the range of capabilities uh, of GPT-3 was really shocking. It was the first time that we really moved in an important way out of the era of narrow AI. So we had until then this, this phase where every AI system could only really perform the specific task that it was trained for. So you can think here of like the Netflix movie recommender engine. That's all it could do. It could recommend movies. It could not do your taxes for you. Same with every like facial recognition AI, blah, blah, blah. But with GPT-3, we have here for the first time a single system that can do autocomplete, sure, but it can also translate between languages. It can write coherent multi-paragraph essays. It can write tweets that are so human-like that they can't be distinguished from human-generated text. It can code. It can do basic web design. It can answer questions. It can do all kinds of things that its developers at OpenAI had no idea was in the cards. So this really, it took them by surprise. And the reason that it's so important, I mean, a powerful AI system in and of itself would be noteworthy, but the reason that this made us stop and go, okay, we think it's now time to start thinking about the safety side of this technology and actually moving our career arc, like the, the time window is getting pretty short for the sorts of concerns that we had, was that GPT-3 was not a clever algorithm. It wasn't some radical new design. It wasn't a new architecture. It was basically the same old thing, the transformer, a kind of neural network architecture that had been around since 2017, just scaled up like crazy. So trained with way more compute, trained with way more layers, way more parameters, way more weights, and uh, just on an ungodly amount of data. And those things alone, scale alone, led to this qualitative change. We moved from narrow systems that could just do autocomplete to general purpose systems. We moved from systems that would fumble at sentence level writing to systems that could write entire paragraphs and almost essays. Um, and because it all came down to scaling, this creates a situation where now we sort of have this like path like for the first time, every company in the world looks at GPT-3 and they say, hey, wait, we know what it takes to make more human-like AI, AI that can handle more general problems. All we need to do is throw $10 million at scaling a thing up, and then we know we can get a reliable amount of performance out of it. And this is actually an empirically observed fact. So we have a whole bunch of scaling laws that originally came out of OpenAI. They've since been revised by some deep mind results. But the bottom line is like, we pretty much know how much money you need to throw at AI to make it more powerful. And we can almost predict how much more powerful it will get with more money. And so this creates a massive economic push and massive acceleration in the field, um, which then leads to a series of risks. I'm happy to dive into the risks right now, but maybe that scene setting is enough for, for the moment. No, I think it, this is great because there's a couple of risks, one that automatically are coming to mind, and I'd like to dive into a few more of these, but particularly the equation you mentioned, right? Which is, hey, we know how much money you need to throw into this and how much output you're going to get. So are we already pre-setting this up between a way of haves and have-nots, 
right? If you have the money to initially invest into this mm -hmm. and to scale it up, do you control it all then right away? And is it harder for others to get into the game? Or how do you see this playing out just in terms of the initial investment and who's controlling some of these key systems? I think that's an excellent question, and it speaks to the sort of societal level challenges that come with AI. Right? I mean, historically, the primary way that wealth got recycled and distributed in our economy was through wages, right? So like, you literally like have a company that cannot make money unless it hires more people to do more stuff. Every company was almost like a consulting company in that sense. Then we started to see SaaS companies where you could just build a bunch of software that delivers value automatically. And now a smaller number of individuals can make massive amounts of dough. And now we're in a world where we're automating and offloading human cognition onto these machines. And the machines are like basically, in principle, going to be able to do the whole stack. And you've got one person at the top or a couple of founders at the top, and they're just like packing all this wealth in and don't have to distribute it at all. So I, I think there's a very valid and, and very fundamental issue here that challenges some of the basic assumptions that our world model has made, really, regardless of what society you think about, whether it's the US or China or, or France, every country in the world has to grapple with this like fundamental challenge. Um, oddly, this is actually a little bit different from the concerns that, uh, that get me out of bed or keep me up at night or maybe a little bit of both. Um, so there, there are kind of two dimensions to what I'm focused on at the moment and, and what we're focused on uh, in our company. And the two dimensions are, are uh, malicious use risk. So the malicious uses of AI and then accident risk. And, and accident risk, I think, is actually going to be by far the most uh, severe and important risk class in the medium term. But for now, we can sort of start with malicious use risk because I think that's the best one at focusing the imagination on the concrete risks these systems could pose. So. You know, you have in GPT-3, you have a system that can write human level. So I can show you a piece, a tweet, say, generated by GPT-3 and a, a tweet generated by a human. And studies have been done that show you can't tell with more than 50% odds, roughly, which one is human and which one is AI generated. And so it's de facto as good as a human. So we've run a bunch of uh, studies ourselves on the potential malicious uses of this. We know China used a very similar system to interfere in the Taiwanese 2020 election. Um, you think back to 2016 with the Russian Internet Research Agency that famously interfered in the U.S. electoral process. They did this with a team of like 400 people. They, they had a massive budget. They reached 126 million people on Facebook with these manually written posts. But what if you could automate that away? What if you could have a tool, not GPT-3, because OpenAI actually has some really good safety uh, protocols sort of scanning through uh, requests from the GPT-3 API, but there are tons of other systems. You can think here of AI21 Labs, Jurassic One Jumbo, or uh, any variety of Chinese, Russian, or Korean models that have come out. These things have proliferated. And so we live in an era where if you want to mount a super scale operation of the sort that Russia did in 2016, except you want to do it 10 times bigger and 10 times cheaper, you can do that pretty straightforwardly. So there's a whole bunch of work in that direction. You can also think about spear phishing. So uh, traditionally, there's this trade-off if you're a phishing attacker. So like I could look up Sadie and I could like look up her LinkedIn and her Facebook and her Instagram and all this stuff, collect a whole bunch of information about her life, and I could craft the perfect phishing email for Sadie. This is called spear phishing. So I have a narrow target and I invest a lot of time into figuring out my target. And that's going to give me a good response rate because everything is super customized, but it doesn't allow me to reach a lot of people because I got to put a ton of time into each target. 
What you can do with a system like GPT-3, or again, a large language model, is benefit from both scale and customization. You can scrape people's LinkedIn profiles, use that to generate a custom prompt, and send 100,000 emails that are both customized and scaled to all of your targets. And so this really is a, it's a fundamental trade-off, this idea of, of like specificity versus scale that cyber defenders have, have depended on for the last three decades or more as email-powered sort of phishing attacks have become more and more of a thing. Um, there are a whole bunch of other malicious applications that are enabled by things like code writing AI systems. Uh, you know, GitHub's Copilot is a good example that's powered by OpenAI's Codex. When you have AI that can write code, you have a AI that can write malware code and malware that rewrites itself in order to make itself very, very difficult to detect. And so this is another category of concern that's just over the horizon. Whole bunch of things like that. Anyway, that's the, the kind of malicious use framing. And that's what's often gotten us into the door. So we talk to a lot of government agencies in the US and in Canada, we talk to the US State Department, the US Air Force, uh, basically Homeland Security, those sorts of uh, agencies and departments focusing on helping them anticipate potential malicious uses of AI from these cutting edge systems. Because like most people in the space, they don't think of AI in terms of you know, foundation models and scaling. They think of the narrow AI that we had like five years ago, but that era is now over. So we really need to focus on cutting edge tracking because the cutting edge translates into capabilities today way faster than it used to. Um, so anyway, that's malicious use, but maybe I can park it there for, for the moment before I dive into the, the accident rabbit hole. Yeah, no, so one question on malicious use. So in cybersecurity, we have different types of hackers, right? And we have something called white hat hackers. Do you who are essentially good the good guys who go and try and hack into systems to see where all the faults are? Do you see the world of AI evolving in a way where we then soon have kind of white hat AI people, right? Where they're looking and taking an AI system and saying, hey, I'm not going to use it maliciously, but I'm looking at it from a standpoint of all the ways it potentially could be used maliciously so that we're well aware of it. Do you see, I mean, there's always more roles in this career evolving. Do you see potentially a, a use for maybe some white hat AI hackers in AI as well? A hundred percent. Actually, one of the most common recommendations that we make when it comes to malicious use is this idea of red teaming. So, you know, if you want to understand your exposure to AI malicious use, one of the things you could imagine doing is, yeah, getting a team of people to try to break your systems using AI-powered, AI-augmented attacks. So I think you're absolutely right. Like, uh, as, a, as a career sort of field, I think that is really interesting. Um, it also ties into prompt engineering, which is becoming a really important thing, right? Like, our ability to get value out of the AI systems that we use, systems like GPT-3, is increasingly being bottlenecked by our ability to prompt them correctly. So like GPT-3 has a whole bunch of latent capability that it will not show you unless you ask it in just the right way. Uh, actually, classic example of this, and this is going to tie us into the accident risk thing too. Um, so originally, people would like kind of make fun of GPT-3 because if you asked it a nonsense question, it would still try to answer you. So if you, if you asked it, like, how many sporkles go into a Moogle, it would actually tell you like seven, like, like a, a human who hadn't studied for an exam because it was trying to, trying to BS their way through it. Um, but so, so people interpreted this as being like, oh, GPT-3 is stupid. It doesn't actually understand these concepts. We don't need to worry about it. Now, later, it turned out that if you prompt the system with something that sounds like the following is an inter interaction between GPT-3, a super smart AI, uh, and a human, 
if the human asks a nonsense question, GPT-3 will answer with, yo, be real. And so they ran this test. They gave it that prompt. They fed it the same questions. How many sporkle go into a Moogle? And then they got, yo, be real. And so what we realized from that example is like, well, wait a minute. Like these systems, they have more capabilities than they're showing us. They're not, they don't come aligned with our values for free. They have capabilities that they choose not to express for whatever reason, um, because we haven't asked, asked them right. So now the question becomes, how do we design good questions? How do we come up with engineers of these prompts? How do we do good prompt engineering? So I think the field of prompt engineering is really interesting, really, really important and poised to take off. So people who want to get really good at prompt engineering, I mean, play with the GPT-3 API, you know, see, see how you can learn to kind of guide it and get more value out of it than someone with, uh, with less experience. And I think that's a really interesting thing to work into projects and things like that. I love it. So talking about accidents a little bit more, are there more risks that you see in terms of accidents happening that when, you know, you mentioned that we don't even know the full capabilities. How do we, how do we explore some of these a little bit more? Is this through the prompt engineering or what do you recommend people, what actions take to prevent some of these accidents happening? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and I think you're exactly right to identify this, like how many sporkles go into a Moogle and then GPT-3 actually answering with seven as an accident. Because, you know, if you asked it a nonsense question that you didn't realize was a nonsense question in a context that's safety critical and you got an answer, you might well act on that answer. And yeah, that would lead to an accident. So, so it's a, we're limited only by our imaginations here in some sense. But um, yeah, so, so there are a whole bunch of there are a whole bunch of discussions, there's a whole bunch of research around the topic of AI accidents. I'm going to clear all of that away for a moment and focus on the kind of accident risk that I think is going to be most important for our long-term safety as, as a species, really. And this is the tendency of AI systems to come up with what you can think of as dangerously creative solutions to achieve their programmed objectives. So uh, what do I mean by that? Well, when we train an AI system, we give it a loss function, an objective function to optimize. Basically, AI systems are giant number go up machines. They take a number and they try to optimize for it or number go down, depending on your perspective. And um, so one of the challenges is like, when your AI system is really dumb, the sorts of things that it will do to make a number go up are like the obvious ones, right? They're like, you know, if, if you're um, the sort of first order solutions that like a child might think of. And so this places those solutions in a realm that's highly predictable. So engineers can easily go, yeah, you know, I think it'll probably look like this. This is the behavior we expect in the system. Now, as those AI systems develop more and more capabilities, what we start to find is increasingly they discover ways of making that number go up that their developers never anticipated. So some of those strategies are cool. In fact, some of them are beneficial, right? We might discover, for example, like a cancer diagnosis AI that finds a new way to diagnose cancer that we never thought of before. How exciting is that? Is that not precisely the value that we hope to get in the long term from AI systems? They're giving us a new lens on the world. What could be better? But the dark side to this is what happens when an AI system comes up with a solution that has side effects, side effects that exploit a glitch, if you will, a hack, a, a blind spot in the metric that you fed it that allows you to make that number go up while at the same time having horrible side effects for some part of the world that you actually care about. 
And so you can think here of an AI system that is, you know, like a self-driving car to take a ridiculously simple example. Uh, you say, hey, I want you to go from point A to point B as quickly as possible. And then you realize, oh crap, that involves like driving through buildings and plowing over pedestrians. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Let's put in a bunch of rules to say, don't do that. And then the next thing you run it again, oh shoot, it's going the wrong way down a one-way street. Okay, let's cover that possibility. But you're kind of seeing yourself playing this game of whack-a-mole. And in some sense, the only reason that you've been able to anticipate all of these failure modes is that you you have a system that is um, is making mistakes that are human understandable. But as we start to rely on these systems more and more for more and more cognitively sophisticated tasks, we may reach a point where the hack that they're exploiting is at a level of abstraction that's just higher than we can understand. And there's some evidence that actually we should expect this sort of behavior by default. And a lot of these hacks, unfortunately, have like, in the long run, world-ending level consequences, as insane as this sounds. Um, I'm happy to dive into that aspect more. I, I think that's a, a pretty pregnant uh, zone of conversation, but uh, I'll, maybe I'll pause there for now. No, I think it's a great place to pause. I, I think we also do this at in our own eternal life, right? So as an individual, there may be something I personally want to optimize. Maybe it's my health or my fitness. And when I put so much of a laser focus on that, uh, let's say I'm training for a marathon, right? Maybe some of my work or my relationships or my personal life start to kind of fall away, right? There's these unintended consequences, right? So I think yes. the example you give is a great example the only problem with AI is it gets even hyper-focused more than, you know, I as an right. individual may be training for a marathon or a triathlon where there's these unintended consequences because of what I'm trying to optimize. So I think that's a great example that everyone can relate to of like, yes, we understand it's optimizing something, but what are those unintended consequences? Yeah. And, and actually, it's funny you raise that. So so what you're pointing at is is a fundamental truth about the universe. And economists know this truth by its theoretical name, which is Goodhart's Law. So what Goodhart's Law says is like anytime you turn a metric, a number, into a target of optimization, anytime you say, okay, I'm going to make it my mission to make that number go up, that metric loses its value as a good metric of the thing you're trying to, the thing you care about. So we can think of, for example, like in an economic context of say like the value of the stock market, right? If we go back to the year 1900 and you're looking around, you're like, hmm, what should our civilization optimize for? There'd be an interesting argument you could make that we should optimize for the value of the stock market. When the stock market goes up, everybody's making a lot of money. Everybody's happy. Everybody has more you know, kind of liberty and, and, and opportunity. So wouldn't it be lovely if we started to do that? Wouldn't it be lovely if we started to orient the attention of the general public, politicians, institutions, and companies on making that number go up? And of course, we now know that the ways to make the stock market go up include a lot of strategies that are very undesirable. You get results like massive levels of inequality, like massive levels of government money printing and inflation. You get all these side effects. The number's still going up. Hey, that's great. I mean, it's starting to crash now. But, but you know, in the long run, it does go up, but you lose so much of yourself in the process. Other examples include like teachers teaching to the test. Right? You say, wouldn't we love to live in a society where school test scores were really high? Great. Well, then don't be surprised when teachers who are very clever come up with hacks, dangerously creative strategies that make the number go up, but do not give you the result that you actually hope for. So Goodhart's Law actually appears everywhere. Like you said, you know, if you focus entirely on your work, well, your fitness is going to suffer. Right? There are always going to be these side effects, and the numbers you track are going to determine what those side effects end up being. 
Yeah, and I, I love the examples in real life so that we all know we all do this, right? And trying to Yeah, drive. yeah. But I think the the biggest risk here is just the scale of AI, right? So it's one thing for us as an individual to do that in our own life or maybe to have it done in particular business settings and KPIs that we measure. But really the risk here with AI sounds like because it's at scale, that's where we need to have concern. Yes. And I, I think it's also, so it's both the scale bit and also the, the intelligence bit. So, you know, as these systems become more intelligent, um, one really interesting related idea is that they start to learn that certain goals are always going to be useful, no matter what they're doing. So they become clever enough to start to think about the metagame. Um, and so one example of this is, um, is called instrumental convergence. So there's this idea that no matter what number you're trying to optimize for, it is always useful for you to do several things. So one thing that it is always useful for you to do is not get shut down. Because no matter what that number is you're trying to make go up, if you're shut down, you're not going to be able to make it go up. So this is like a goal that you can expect all intelligent agents to converge on. Um, humans have other instrumental goals. I mean, we like to avoid being shut down too, but things like collecting money. Like I can't tell you why I want $10 million, but I can tell you that I would prefer to have $10 million than not. I don't need to tell you what my life is about. Like it, this is just an instrumental goal. It's, it's, inst it's an instrument that I can use for whatever my actual goals are. Likewise, you have the, the goal of becoming smarter, becoming more capable. You're always going to be better off if you're more clever. Um, you're always going to be better off hogging resources, collecting more resources, and so on. And so in the long run, the concern, and this is actually as, as futuristic as the seems, uh, their entire AI alignment teams working at the world's best labs, I'm talking about OpenAI, DeepMind, Anthropic, like the cream of the crop, who stay up at night worried about what we will get once AI systems become clever enough to recognize that these instrumental goals are worth pursuing. And, um, and anyway, so that, that's kind of the long run accident risk part of this. And it's, we're approaching it, unfortunately, I think much more quickly than most people realize. And GPT-3, I think was a warning shot. And I think the scaling hypothesis gives us a trajectory that we are at risk of following possibly blindly into a world where this becomes a real risk. Okay. So we've talked a lot about the risk in terms of malicious use, accidents, what happens when this is at scale and also intelligent. So do you see the use of AI outweighing the risk? Or like, how do you quantify both of these? And should we be quantifying them when we decide to implement one of these models of maybe a cost-benefit analysis of just the use of AI? I think that's a really good question. Um, so long-term, I actually think AI, horribly paradoxically, is one of our best shots um, at, at ensuring the long-term prosperity of humanity. Um, not just because, hey, AI solves all our problems. It can teach us new ways to diagnose disease and treat disease and so on, but also because it's not like we, we have a shortage of existential risks. We're facing you know, the risk of, of possible pandemics. We're facing risks related to you know, nuclear accidents, nuclear war. Uh, the, the, the list is, is way, way too long uh, to just be focused on one source of risk here in AI. And I think AI does offer us solutions to a lot of these things in a way that no other class of technology does. So to some degree, there's a bit of a race going on here between like the risks posed by AI and the benefits, and then the risks posed by other things. And like, how fast can you harness AI to address our other problems? 
Um, how you actually run that calculation is way above my pay grade. I think, unfortunately, it's above everyone's pay grade. And right now, the central challenge, I think, is that because AI gives us a, like an economic gradient, like every company that improves its AI capabilities makes more money as it goes. And because we don't know where that tripwire is, that threshold of capability beyond which these significant global risks start to become real, um, we're, I think, much more at risk of pushing AI capabilities faster than uh, too fast than too slow. Like, I think that the, the voices of the people who deeply understand uh, the problem of AI safety and AI alignment are currently being drowned out by the voices of people who say, oh, like, don't worry about it, um, without actually having engaged with the research. And there's like super high quality research that like I'm talking NeurIPS papers and things like that, that really show this is an important accident class. Um, but so, so I think it's kind of both. I'm, I'm reluctant to say, I think AI needs to be both accelerated and slowed down, uh, but for, for two different reasons. So uh, that's, that's part of the challenge here, yeah. So you are not somebody who just says this though. You're someone who's actually practicing what they preach here of like, hey, we need to be concerned of some of these risks. And you've built this AI tracker tool. You're now pivoted from sharpest minds to speak more on this topic and to help um, government officials and individuals understand what that looks like. So What's this next phase look like for you? Like, what are you looking to do with AI Tracker? Where does, what kind of impact are you hoping this tool has? And where are you going to take it from here? Yeah, a great question. Um, so in terms of the strategy of the company, and, and this reflects our views about like what needs to happen in order for the world to be safer from these risks. And the first thing is like, you can't have institutions like governments plodding along with no situational awareness whatsoever about what AI is doing, because at some point, AI systems are going to become so powerful that you cannot allow some random bozo to have an AWS subscription or like access AWS's services and train their own model, because like those models will have capabilities that are arbitrarily significant. Um, so if you work backwards from there to say, okay, what does the world need to change in order to move towards that reality? One of the first steps is just awareness, so tracking. And so what we do is we track cutting edge AI developments, like what we call frontier AI research, and we translate it into its malicious use and accident risks in language that policymakers can understand. And this came out of like a big tour of the Canadian and American political scene and civil service scenes where uh, I ended up briefing, actually, I, I sort of stumbled into this, but I ended up briefing a whole bunch of Canadian MPs, including our, uh, our minister of justice and a whole bunch of folks in the defense establishment and public safety and all that. And it was super valuable because we got this perspective on what people are missing, like what the conversations are missing in this ecosystem. And that's what led to this tracker. Like we kind of went, okay, in order for you guys to actually understand what this beast is that you're dealing with, uh, you need this set of features. And so that's what we built out. It's really about allowing us to put this front and center so people understand this is the state of AI capabilities today. These are the trends. Like it doesn't take a PhD to draw a straight line between two dots and go, oh, like we should probably be thinking about the future very differently. And our future should probably include a big focus on safety based on some of the early indications we're seeing. Um, so that's that's sort of the, the philosophy behind it at this stage. Oh, actually, and I should mention too, um, so we do AI safety research as well. So we have like a whole AI alignment, AI safety arm. And um, my brother leads that. So he's collaborating with folks from DeepMind, OpenAI, and Anthropic on, on 
exactly this issue of like, how do you steer AI and maintain control over it essentially as, uh, as it gets better? Yeah, so I think one of the beautiful things about what you're talking about here is talking to those who need to know in the language that they understand. And I think we need so many more translators, especially if you're someone yes. who works in this space, who understands these models. We must get off like our high priestess of what it means to build these. It's not too hard to understand. Like you said, anyone can draw a straight line and see where it's going. But we need more translators, right? We need people to... Yeah communicate to policymakers, to leaders, to the general public in a way that they can understand. So that's why I'm such a fan of what you're doing, because you're becoming that middleman, that bridge to help more people have that awareness and understanding so that we can steer this in a great direction. But in that regard, what advice do you have for people who are either data practitioners working in the field, understand it, or who are leaders or who are just the general public what can all of us do to make sure we are steering AI in a direction that benefits everyone and is safe and creates more equality and opportunity for those around us? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So the first thing I would say is the world needs more AI alignment researchers. So if you're in a like quantitative STEM field, especially like if, if you if you really dig math, I would super, super, super recommend um, checking out 80,000 hours. They have a great series of blog posts on like really impactful career choices. And the, their top recommended career trajectory right now is AI safety research. So if, if you're in that position, like I super recommend checking that out. That is the number one thing. We're not bottlenecked on money, by the way. Like there, uh, there's a lot of money floating in this ecosystem, but finding people to fund who are like kind of understand the problem, that's the limiting thing. Um, beyond that, I think, yeah, like a... A communications level, um, starting to think more in terms and speak more in terms of alignment, speak more in terms of like, you know, think about the capabilities that your system has. And if your system is more capable than it's letting on, like if, if you find situations like the GPT-3 scenario kind of unfolding where you, know, you need to tune that prompt to get the actual response that you want, and if you don't tune it just right, like keep your eyes out for that because it's really good for raising awareness generally. Um, there's a place you can actually go to report AI accidents. And I think this is a really impactful thing you can do and encourage your organization to do as well. This is the partnership on AI's AI incident database. So I, I really recommend, you know, making that arguing for that being part of the, the company's process. You know, we're going to be better at doing AI safety work if we see examples of how AI systems have failed, if they're properly logged. And that's part of being a good, responsible member of the AI capabilities world. Um, I think those are the two main things. I think there's almost a like a, I would say, like a political aspect of this too, a sort of right to your congressperson, like actually think about doing that. Um, so, you know, look into it. Don't take my word for it. There's a whole bunch of literature on AI safety and I'm just some person talking about this, but I do think it's a very serious problem. I think it's poorly understood by our decision makers. And I think the more general political pressure there is to start taking long-term AI risk seriously, the better off we'll be. Well, I love these suggestions. They're very actionable. We'll definitely um, get some links to the 80,000 hours and the AI incidents database and put those in the chats. And yes, I agree. I think all of us can take more of a role in advocating um, and communicating with our governments. I think we must remember that, like, you know, 
we are the people and we have the power. And so if there's something we see wrong in the world, we, we have the power to make that change. So thank you so much for sharing all of your insights with us. I could go on for hours asking more questions, but um, if you're ready, I'd love to move into the rapid fire questions. Yeah, I'll have to get my quick backstretch going here. Yeah, I think we're ready to go. <laughs> I know it's always this is all, this always scares people the most, but it, it really is the most fun. So there's no wrong answers <laughs> in rapid fire. Questions. No, I'm looking forward to it. This is awesome. All right, what song do you currently have on repeat? Okay, so it is the theme song from The Wire. It's called "Way Down in the Hole" by the Blind Boys of Alabama. Awesome song. I love I love Blind Boys of Alabama, so I'm gonna check it. Out. All right, favorite place you've traveled. So my mom's side of the family, uh, their hometown is a little town called Amboise in France. And yeah, beautiful place. Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci had like a castle there or something. Anyway, really cool. Sounds fabulous. Um, happiness is? Poorly understood. <laughs> I love it. In the next five years, I hope to? Uh, contribute to making AI beneficial to humanity, let's say. Yes. And last but not least, to me, curiosity is? I think it's one of our noblest impulses, and I think it's also the one that social media subverts the most. I love it. Well, you nailed the rapid fire questions. Thank you so much. Um, what's the best way for people to stay connected with you and your work um, if they want to learn more? Yeah, I really appreciate it. So I, the number one thing I would say is check out AITracker.org. So if you're um, looking to keep up with like, what are the latest AI systems that are relevant to malicious use or this kind of story that we've been telling here, uh, that's really where we track them. Um, if you're interested in just chatting about stuff, like shoot me an email. Um, so my email is my first name. So it's J-E-R-E-M-I-E -E at mercurius.ai. So if I try to spell that, it's M-E-R-C-U-R. I U S dot AI. I'm 80% sure I got that right. And if not, we'll add a link in the show notes and that way you're not having to write this down while you're driving and listening to this. Too. Perfect. So, yeah. Um, we'll be That's sure a surefire way to get a crash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We don't, we don't want any more accidents. Um, happening. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure chatting with you and I hope to be able to have more of these conversations soon. Well, same here. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, stay curious, everyone, and keep learning, and we will talk to you again next time. If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.